first John chapter five. Um, so I've been preaching a series on, on Christian assurance. Um, and uh, in, in, in suggested that that was a helpful way to, uh, at least to emphasize one of uh, the, the themes that John um, hi uh, highlights, he hones in on as he's bringing his epistle to a close. So we're actually coming quite speedily, well, not, so, not, not speedily perhaps, but really and truly, but we're coming to the, to the end of uh, John's epistle. And I've been preaching, the reason why I say not quite speedily, because I realize I'm preaching fairly slowly through these closing, closing parts of... Uh, closing part of 1st John chapter 5. Um, and as John closes his epistle, I think, he, he, I think it's a helpful, it's a fair uh, sort of summary to say that John begins to address the subject of Christian assurance. Now, if, if, if assurance of, of our faith, if assurance of your faith is not something that you've uh, in the past considered to be important, um, I think it's fair to say that at least John certainly does. So John, having dealt with you know, a variety of issues in his, in his first epistle, says that actually the reason why he is writing this, that one of his, his major aims for writing this entire epistle is to encourage, instruct regarding Christian assurance. So it's in one sense the purpose of an entire uh, book in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament. And um, again, I, I won't spend too long on this, but I've explained as to why John might have deemed that a worthy um, aim or purpose. And that's because he's writing to a church that has really been hit with false teaching. And John is aware that false teaching would serve to undermine the foundation, the basis on which these uh, saints had initially built their faith. And he wants to make sure that they haven't been, um, they're not being misdirected, they haven't drifted away because of having to, you know, question certain things, being made to question certain things about their faith because of this other, this intrusion of um, erroneous, aberrant teaching. And so he's concerned to say, hold on, this is, I I'm actually writing this because I want you guys to know that you can be confident that you have known who God is. You can be confident that God is for you. You can be confident that Jesus does save and has saved you. Is something that Christians should know. In fact, in, in the way John is saying it, he, he's, he's not simply saying that it's something Christians can know. He's something, saying it's something Christians should know. You should know that you have eternal life. The, the, the false teaching... And, and false teachers and, and, and a, a, a gospel, um, a Christianity that makes little of Christ, that uh, twists the doctrine of Jesus Christ, is going to result in either a lack of assurance or a false assurance. Because that Jesus, uh, the Jesus that is not the Jesus of the apostolic confession, cannot save. Jesus who is less than God, for example, cannot save a Christian who, a Jesus who is not is not fully man. He cannot identify with us. He can't be our high priest. He cannot save. But I've preached to you, John is saying, the gospel. I've preached Christ to you. And this Jesus Christ, if you put your confidence in him, 
he is able to save. So John says we should know that. And also I've suggested that in this closing section, John has shifted, if you want, on the same subject of Christian confidence, on how, what Christians can be sure of. He's perhaps shifted, um, he's, he's also shifted emphasis from the objective, uh, objective basis that Christians can have of assurance to a more subjective reality. So, I think it was two weeks ago, I preached a sermon called The Witness from Above, where I was saying that John, was, John starts by telling these Christians, the reason why we are confident that Jesus saves is because of God's own witness to his son. This is, this is apart from how you and I may feel about that. There are many people in the world who don't believe the gospel, many people in the world who reject the gospel, many people in the world who don't believe Jesus, but it doesn't change the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world, he died, he rose again, he's ascended as the son of God, and he's coming back. doesn't change that. God has borne witness to this, and John is speaking as an eyewitness of these things. He's speaking as one who has been given a unique authority because he was, he was privileged to have witnessed, to have seen the very Christ. And so John says, God has borne witness to this, that his son has come into the world. And so, there's a, so, 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 so the, the grounds of our being confident of the faith is not ultimately even how we feel, which is why it's possible for Christians, folks who truly have trusted in Jesus Christ, to lack assurance. Because lacking assurance is not, lacking, lacking assurance or even having assurance is not what saves. That's not what we're saying, right? It's Jesus Christ and his finished work that saved. And that work is finished even when we don't feel like it is. But John has also moved to a more subjective reality of that. John has said, God bears witness to the fact that his son is the Messiah, that his son has been sent into the world to save. But it doesn't just, not only does God do it objectively in a way in which it happens apart and outside of us, he also does it within us. He also confirms that in us. He gives us his spirit as an inner witness um, and so he says, I'm writing that you might know, that you might be experientially acquainted with the fact, that you might be increasingly aware and, and increasingly apprehending the fact that this Jesus has died to save me. I know that my Redeemer lives. And, li and so live as one who realizes that you have received eternal life. I want you to know that you have eternal life. I want you to know that the life you live now, you live by faith in the Son of God. I want you to know that you are now a new creature. your new, new creation and all things are passed away. I, I want you to know that God's Spirit lives in you. I want you to know that you have a, a God life. I want you to know that you are a partaker of the divine nature. I want you to know, know that your life is no longer just, is not normal that you are, you, are, you are supported by supernatural hand. I want you to know that you have a certain future in heaven. I want you to know that you're already living a life that will never expire. The body will sleep, but you will live on forever because you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and you'll be given a new body that can contain this divine and eternal life, right? I want you to know these things. I want you to feel that way. I want you to know that you... God is always with you because you're his child now. You're always in the presence of God, right? You don't have to go to the mountains to find God. You don't have to go to a church building to find God because you're God's child. You're always in him and he's always in you. 
I want you to know that. I want you to feel that. I want you to live that. And with that on his mind, then, with him still addressing the ways in which Christians come to this experiential awareness of God's, of them being God's children, the ways in which Christians experientially know that they, that they have assurance and, and are convinced, I'm, I'm God's child. Um, he, 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 with that in mind, he addresses a particular aspect of Christian living. And this is, this is the second time John has done this this way. He's done this earlier in the third, his third, third chapter of this book. He addresses this aspect of Christian living. That, that, and the connection has to be that for John, this is a vital mark. It flows out of the assurance that we have of eternal life. That is to say, because we live this as new, as new creation, because we live with God in us, because God's spirit is in us, and we have been regenerated, we're born again, we're new. One of the marks of this, one of the things that happens in our lives, one of the characteristics of this sort of assurance that we have that we're God's children is prayer, but also is a certain type of prayer. It's, the, it's, the, it's, it's, a, it's a certain kind of confidence that we have in prayer. One of the ways by which it becomes apparent to us and increasingly evident to us that we are the children of God. Now, in one sense, then, John's teaching here is just another stressing of Pauline theology when Paul might say that the Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God and he, 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 by, by him we cry out, Father, that the almost uh, that the, the consequential effect of receiving God's spirit and being convinced that we're God's children is crying out in prayer. So John, for John, it's a, it's a kind of seamless shift from speaking about knowing that we are God's children to speaking about how that then results, how that evidences itself in prayer. That prayer is, in that sense, just the natural consequence of having become children of God. That those who have the life of God in them, almost just naturally, of course they respond by prayer. Outside of the life of God, folks don't know this thing of prayer. They don't have this experience of prayer. They don't have this life of prayer. But when we have become children of God, when we're truly Christians, there's a, the, 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 the thing to happen is to pray. Prayer is this essential aspect of the life of God in the, in the, in the man and a woman of faith. And so he's going to give this uh, He's going to give this kind of, if you want, this definition of what that kind of prayer looks like. Uh, he's going to speak about what this kind of confident prayer, uh, the prayer of someone who knows that they're children of God, this is what it looks like, he's, he's going to say. And, and so we're, we're going to look in a moment at things that I'm not suggesting are exhaustive of what prayer is. I'm not saying that John, John defines prayer exhaustively, but he's, he's, he does speak about things that are essential to prayer. He speaks about things that are essential to prayer, and it's impossible to miss, and that's why I read John chapter 14, that at this point, the apostle is echoing the words of his master, right? 
um, those words, for example, like the ones I read in John chapter 14, when on the eve of his crucifixion, um, he, he began to, in attempting to comfort his disciples and prepare them for a life without him, bodily, but with him in his resurrected life, he urges them, he exhorts them that one of the most privileged things they will experience and one of the greatest reminders they will have that he continues to be with them, one of the greatest assurances they will have that he has gone to prepare a place for them that he will eventually take them to is the privilege they have of prayer. You will ask whatever you want in my name and for my sake, the Father will give it to you. You will ask of me in that day, and your joy will be full. You will ask of me in that day by the impulse of the Spirit that lives in you, and you will be assured that you receive what you ask. And so Jesus Christ had already told the disciples that the sign that he was with them that the sign, the confidence that they would have, that they continue to be with, they continue to be his own, and that he continued to be with them, is that they would ask and they would receive. And so all John is doing here is taking the words of his very own master and saying, actually, those weren't words that were simply spoken to a bunch of disciples with Jesus Christ after the upper room. Those were words that were also meant for disciples who would follow after us. For all who would believe because of our gospel, we also have to tell them, if you believe in this Jesus, the privilege and the evidence of God's presence will be with you will, will be how we pray. This is how Jesus Christ, will, one way at least, by which Jesus Christ would manifest himself to us, but not to the world. When the disciples said, how can this be possible? that we will see you, but the world won't see you. This will be one of the ways, because you'll be able to pray in such a way that you know that God is your God. You'll be able to ask God for things in such a way that you know that you are in communion with God. It's a privilege that the world does not have or does not understand. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at how John speaks of prayer and remind us then of what is, of course, a vital part of Christian living, but also remind us of what, if you want, genuine prayer looks like. So I think one of the things that John's words here suggest is that there is, or make, they make us reflect on at least, is that there is such a thing as false praying. Because John is not denying that everyone, might, people, everyone can pray. Not only Christians have prayer as part of their religion, for example, or their religious expression. Very, very many religions have that. But only Christians pray in this way. Only Christians understand prayer in this way. This sort of thing that John speaks here, speaks of here, is the sort of thing that happens only to those who have the Spirit of God. And so what you have then is actually we read this and we say, oh, this is the difference between the prayer of the believer and the prayer of the unbeliever. This is why when we pray, Prayer for us reminds us that we're the children of God. Otherwise, someone will say, but I pray. I just, I, just, I, I, I just pray to another God or I just pray in another way. So why does prayer make you the child of God, but I'm not the child of God? And we say, actually, there's something about the way we pray. 
And also it might rebuke us as Christians if sometimes we begin to uh, fall into a kind of an inauthentic way of praying. If we begin to pray in a way that is not befitting of those who really call upon Jesus Christ. We begin to pray in such a way that is not consistent with how God desires his people uh, to pray. Um, so, and so John's words will help us do that. They will help us in chapter 5 here to um, sift false praying from true praying to make sure that our praying is aligned with this. And, and in one sense, just to remind us, as far as assurance goes, uh, those things that mark out what the child of God is, what the child of God's life is like. And so we're looking at our prayer lives and saying, does my prayer life reflect this? Is, is, is my approach to prayer consistent with the things that John says about prayer? And so I think John is saying to us, when you have received the Spirit of God, when you have believed in Jesus Christ, this is what prayer looks like for you. The result of believing Christ is you begin to pray, you live a life of prayer, but this is what prayer looks like. And uh, prayer is, is really, is, is, is strange because what, what's happening is you believe the gospel and you receive this impulse to pray, but your prayer life drives you back to the gospel, right? Your, your, your prayer is a reenacting of that same gospel that you believed. And I'll show you how um, uh, Paul Sorry, uh, John demonstrates that for us in his epistle. Just by looking at three things, three things that John emphasizes here. I, I must say, I, I'm making, I, I'm dividing these things, but they're really constituent parts of a whole, right? I think they all form, in John's mind, they all form one, one in one sense, unbreakable chain, even though he's emphasizing uh, these parts. So three things I'm saying he's emphasized, that the confidence we have before God in prayer, right? There's, I think John is, is, is he's, he's saying that, one of the things that mark Christian praying and that separate it from any other kind of praying is the confidence. We just sang that in the hymn with, with confidence I now draw nigh. We didn't sing it, but you know, it was in the words of the hymn. We, 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 with confidence I draw nigh. That's a unique thing. It's a, it's a biblical emphasis um, that there's a confidence in which we approach that shows that we have believed in Jesus Christ. Another thing, second thing, is that we pray according to the will of God. This, this, this kind of uh, this boundary, if you want, and, and I don't want boundaries to sound like um, a hindrance, but it's, it's a kind of boundary that John prays, sorry, places around how Christians pray. The believer prays confidently. So confidently we can ask God for things. We ask God confidently, assured that he hears us when we pray. But, as, but, but we also always pray in a way that is consistent with the will of God, that's, 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 in the, that's in our foremost thoughts. It's our foremost desire is to pray with, in a way that is consistent with the will of God. And thirdly, um, the confidence that we have whatever we ask of him. That's what John says. He says we pray in such a way that we are always sure that whatever we ask of God, he gives to us. Everything we ask from God, he gives to us. So it's, it's, a, strange, it's, 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 it's a strange thing to understand in light of many of our experiences in prayer, in light of even the experiences of some of the saints in prayer. This is what John says. And I want to look at those three things. As I say, they're, they're constituent parts of a whole. And in fact, for John, confidence in prayer is shown in the fact that we freely ask God for anything according to his will, whilst we confidently expect to receive everything that we ask from God. So this is one thing in John's mind, uh, but, but, but I think they, have, they do have their own unique emphasis. And so it's fine for us to look at it this way. So firstly, he says, the praying of 
the man or woman who has trusted in Jesus Christ and this God is now their God. The praying of God's people should be marked by a certain boldness. And the, the crucial thing about this boldness, about this freedom we have, is that it's a freedom in the presence of God. So John says in verse 14 that this is the confidence that we have towards him. We, we boldly approach the throne of grace. These are uh, reminiscent of the words of uh, the, the writer to the Hebrews who tells us to boldly come before God's throne. We have confidence. We have a freedom. We, have, we, we feel like we will be afforded an audience. We feel like we will not be rejected. We're sure about that. We feel like God wants us to come. He wants to hear me. There's no hindrances. I will always be heard by the God of the universe. It's almost like we have the right to come. We feel like we have the right to come. Nothing can get in my way. God will hear me when I pray. You know, in the history of the world, uh, so many people, and maybe the folks we respect the most in the world, are people who have fought for their people, fought to earn their people the rights to do certain things, the rights to certain liberties, uh, are the people that we usually invest with the most honor. Well, Jesus Christ died and fought for us to have the right to an audience with God. This is why it's absolutely vital that we approach prayer in confidence. Because that privilege is something that Christ died for. To say that we shrivel up in the place of prayer. To say that we feel like God may not hear us. To say that we feel like we have to go through some kind of ablution and wash, wash ourselves or we wonder if God will hear. Is to suggest that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was not sufficient. And so praying with confidence becomes a serious gospel issue. At least it becomes an issue of how you have understood the gospel. Why are you not free to cry out to God for all your needs? Why are you not free? Why don't you feel at liberty to wrestle with God, to ask him something? Is it because you're not believing that the gospel is sufficient? But the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus Christ we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus because he has consecrated this new and living way to us. Jesus Christ has, by his blood, ensured that we can come into God's presence without, without any hindrances, without anything getting in our way. There's a movement here, a movement from Christ's propitiation to our prayer. The, our prayers are grounded in what Christ has done. And, and so uh, just a few, a few things to say about this then. The, the boldness. When, when John says we need to have boldness, almost an audacity to come before God, it, surely it's because John is contrasting our sinfulness with the holiness of God. Brothers and sisters, the world takes it for granted that it is just a light thing to come before a holy God in prayer. But we should know better than that. When John speaks of confidence, 
boldness. He's saying that, and when he says that boldness is dependent on the cross of Jesus Christ, he's saying that because apart from the grace of God, apart from the redeeming work of God, we have no, we should be ashamed to come before God. And in the scriptures, shame is a language of damnation and condemnation. That's why Peter, in his first epistle, says in the second chapter, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, the one who believes on him will not be ashamed. Right? What we deserve is to be ashamed before God. Ever since Adam and Eve were ashamed, really to face God, and barred from ever being in his presence, humanity has not had the right to appear before God. We are sinful. Our desires are sinful. And you and I know as Christians that even in our most holy moments, when we come to God in prayer, we still sometimes harbor sinful thoughts that it would be shameful to bring before God in the place of prayer. Here I go wanting to ask God confidently to forgive me for my sins, knowing that I'm wrestling with forgiving someone else. And I feel the shame of that. Who am I to appear before? A God so holy, a God who searches my heart. Here am I coming to cry out to God because I'm desperately in need, knowing that I just rejected him a moment before. And John says, we would be ashamed otherwise. But actually, Christian prayer must be marked by boldness because it's a gospel thing. It says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And so because I'm coming to God in prayer, based on what Christ has done, I have no reason to be ashamed. John is telling us never to approach God in prayer, outside of being centered in the gospel. Here I am, here I am approach, uh, uh, approaching God and appearing before his throne, clothed in robes of righteousness. Asking God as though it was Jesus petitioning for me. And that's the boldness. It's a gospel-centered boldness. It's a Christ-centered boldness. And it's the kind of motion, impulse, movement, the unbelieving man or woman has never felt, has never known. So no wonder they trivialize prayer. We take for granted the words of that blind man who said, we know that God does not hear sinners. He was dealing in deep theology, funnily enough, whilst being rejected by the theologians of the day. There's profound thought there. Sinners don't have a right to God's ear. And that's what we are. So how can we come to God with boldness? Through Christ. It's a gospel thing. And John says, we're not going to reject the gospel. We're going to glory in it. So we approach God with boldness, with confidence, knowing that we will be heard. Because of what Christ has done, he has made a way for us to draw near to God, this Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Every time we come before God in prayer, our consciences are cleansed. Our consciences are cleansed, you see. Um, and our guilt is lifted. The kind of guilt that really would have got us cancelled somewhere else. But before God, we look at Jesus Christ who cancels our guilt. You know, it's a funny thing. 
We live in a culture of people canceling each other. And listen, sometimes, let's be frank, some people just, you know, listen, here and there, you, you might need to be canceled, maybe for a few months at least. But here's the point. We're all canceling people, not worried about if God is canceling me, where am I before God? And, and let me say this to you. Who cares how many men cancel you if God hasn't? Who cares how many men cancel, cancel you because of your guilt if God has canceled your guilt? All I'm saying is have some priority. Here you are canceling everybody on the internet, but you don't pray like someone who knows your guilt has been canceled. Have some priority. Here you are expressing your freedom of speech all over the internet, but you won't express that freedom before God. And there's nothing that matters like that. Nothing matters like that than being in prayer and knowing that here I am, standing here on the back of the justified work of Jesus Christ. Standing here because of my Savior, my great high priest. There's nothing like prayer for that, my brothers and sisters, to search the conscience, to deal with what really goes down within. There's nothing like that. That's why a prayerless life is such a disaster. Because we miss this glorious opportunity to enter into the rendezvous of the gospel, to drink from it, to, to bask in it, to rejoice in it, to feel like I am nothing. A, prayerless, a prayerful person could never be prideful because nothing like prayer shows us that we're nothing and someone else is everything. But we do pray with confidence when we have grappled with the mystery of the gospel, the Spirit gives liberty to pray. What's your prayer life like? Is there liberty? Is there liberty? Are you free before God in prayer? Because you know that your prayer is not dependent on how hard you're about to work. It's dependent on the work that Christ has already done. He's already completed. So there's a freeness because I have an audience with the God of heaven and earth. This is my God. He's going to hear me. And this is the beautiful thing about, about John's theology here. What it means is our praying is not dependent on some other mediator. We're not waiting for Elijah to pray the kind of prayers that will shake the world for the gospel. We're not waiting for some minister to pray for us. You know, some, in, in certain settings, certain churches, there's a bad habit of that of making it seem like the pastor or uh, the minister is, is some mediator. And, and we haven't prayed until he prays. And you won't pray until you ask pastor to pray for you. Now, by all means, ask people to keep you in prayer. But you have access to God's presence. And not someone else for you. You do. Because Christ has died. And why would you want anyone else to go for you? Why would you want a minister to intercede for you? Why, do, why does Roman Catholicism allow the priests and some saints to go for them? Why would I want to do that when the Son of God himself, who is at the right hand of the Father, will intercede for me? So there has to be a confidence. There's a freedom. There's a freeness we have in prayer. We're bold, we're bold, we're bold in prayer. This is my Father's house. This is the issue, is it not, with prayer just being a chore? How could prayer just be? Now, I, I, can, I can see that prayer is wrestling. Prayer is labor. But how can it just be a chore? How can it seem like it's a burden? How do we not see that it's a privilege? How blind must we be not to see that? 
the only place in this world where we can have true confidence to speak. And it's before God. And we still take it for granted. Let me blast you again. Big mouth all over the internet. Big mouth all over Twitter. Big mouth all over Instagram. But you don't even speak to God. You don't speak so boldly before the one who matters. Most people don't even listen to your tweet. Most people don't read it. It don't change most people. Your tweet is the thing today. It's not the vibe tomorrow. That's it. But you have an audience with God and we don't use it. Right? And, and, and it's a shame to us. It's a rebuke to us. The second thing to say then is that prayer though is according to the will of God. This is another unique thing about Christian praying. But when you and I come to pray. So it's the beautiful thing. John says we have a boldness in prayer. We have a confidence in prayer. But you know what he says as well? He says that, and, and he says, sorry, he says that confidence. Let me describe that confidence to you. And this is where my breaking up of the, of the, of the verses is maybe not so helpful. Because what John says is, do you want me to describe what that confidence is to you? It's like, you can ask God for anything. That's confidence. That's boldness. You can ask God for anything. But John saves us from being careless here. Because the mind is deceitful. We can truly wrestle with God about anything. But he says, it's according to the will of God. Right? And, and ignoring this kind of reminder, ignoring this kind of instruction, has made so many people spend their time praying such foolish prayers. Because what they simply say is, I can allow my own sinful desires. And that's what I said before. We have sinful desires in the place of prayer. And people, say, I, people basically say, well, God said I can ask for anything. So I can allow, allow my sinful desires to run riot. And I'm just going to ask for anything I want. But that's not what the scriptures teach us. The Bible reminds us that we're asking for these things in line with the will of God. That is to say, brothers and sisters, faithful praying, believing praying, confident praying is always in accordance with the will of God. The, the, the petitioner, the supplicant, the, the praying Christian is not intending to attempt to impose their own desires, their own will on the sovereign God of the universe. We know better than that. He's immutable. He doesn't change. He's the beginning and the end. He knows what you need before you ask him. So you're not trying to twist him and change him, deceive him, cajole him, force him to do things. This is, the, this, is the, this is why fasting has been is rejected by so many people today. Because it becomes obvious. What, all we're trying to do is fast to force God to do something. You go for 30 days. 30 day fasting. 2 months fasting. I don't know. 30 day fasting. And your, your, your minister tells you what we're going to be praying for in 30 days is, uh, is, is just breakthrough. And that you'll be a millionaire. And he makes you pray that for 30 days. That's abuse, number one. Number two, the only thing you benefited probably is just you lost weight. Apart from that, you've just, you're trying, you cannot control God. You can't control him. Are you praying for things that God has approved? Now, I'm not denying the role of fasting, the usefulness of fasting. But are you praying for those things that God has said is consistent with his will? Things that God has said I delight in? That's what prayer is. It's not our attempt to twist him. It's not our attempt to bring, like we're bringing sacrifices to, uh, to, to some kind of uh, native doctor in China and say, I give you this, so you give me, give me stuff back in return. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is that place where we're submitting to the will of God. 
Prayer is that place where we're wanting all of life to be in line with the will of God. Right? We're not trying to change God or control him by praying. We're trying to see him display his glory through us. We know that God has appointed prayer as a means by which he will manifest his glory. And so we, we come to do that. And so it's a thing we do humbly. And yet, this is not to say that this should militate against free, expressive, unrestrained, uninhibited praying. Our prayer should still be full and free. At least John doesn't think so. John says, pray according to the will of God, and yet you can ask him anything. It's not true. First of all, there's a million things that we can ask for anyway, even by that rule alone. So many things that we need that are consistent with God's revealed will, what God has said, what God has shown us, that it's okay to pray about. Millions of things. So we can ask for anything we want. But the question is, what are believers allowed to want? We can ask for whatever we wish, but what are we allowed to wish? It's like the psalmist says that you, you delight yourself in the Lord and he will grant you the desires of your heart. You're not just going to ask God for anything that impugns his will, that, that, that dishonors him. We ask for those things that we know are in accordance with him, his will, that please him. There's some things that the believer is not even allowed to desire, so you don't bring to God in prayer. One of my favorite hymns says, Go to dark, get semony. You that feel the tempter's power, your redeemer's conflict see, watch with him one bitter hour. Turn not from your griefs away. Turn not from his griefs away. Learn from Jesus Christ to pray. Go to dark Gethsemane and learn to pray. And I feel like there's no better place to understand what John is speaking about here than with the Son of God, the God of the universe who took on human form and in his incarnated flesh, weaker than the Father, submitted to him in prayer. The writer to the Hebrews says, uh, probably speaking of Gethsemane, I believe, that in the days of his flesh, Jesus Christ made prayers and supplication to God with loud cries and tears, and he was heard because he feared. He was heard because of his reverence. And what, in what, in what was that reverence displayed? Is in the fact that in all his requesting, and I don't think that I've ever seen a more confident prayer than on the eve of an event that you have pretty much prepared your whole life for, you should speak to God to consider whether things could be changed around. There's no prayer more audacious, if you want, more displaying of boldness and the sense of familiarity with the Father than that prayer right there. That Jesus Christ should seem to be asking to change the whole course of history in just a moment, right? And the reason why he can pray like that is because he is the Son of God. If anyone has boldness to appear before the Father, it's him. Because he says, I and the Father are one. He doesn't have one sinful thought. He, he doesn't have one guilt he needs to, be, to remember that would get in the way of boldness. He is free, as he said, when he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. I know that you've heard me. I know this. That's the kind of boldness he had in prayer. So he was confident in praying. And yet, friends, with all the privilege, all the right that he had to pray, remember what he says after he makes this request of his father. Now, you say it's a bold request. It is, 
But we dare not say that it was an improper request. It was a, it was a, it was a request that he was well within his rights to make. And he says, though, at every single point, not my will, but your will, Father, be done. Can you, can his cup be lifted? But if not, your will be done. Your will be done. And Jesus Christ teaches us how to pray. Prayer is this place where we come to surrender to the will of God for our lives. And we need God. We need God in our lives. If Jesus Christ could have needed the strength of his father at Gethsemane, how can we live life? Those of us who are just mere mortals, so weak, how can we live life for so long as though we don't need his help and grace? How can we live life so prayerlessly when, 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 when the world is lying in wickedness, when, when we uh, have to face the temptations of Satan? Jesus Christ prayed, not my will be done, but yours. Not my will, but your will. And he was teaching us how to pray. He was teaching us what true prayer is. It's coming to God with boldness for those things that are consistent with his will. It's coming to God in boldness, yet knowing that what you desire the most is for God's will to be done. Right? Never forget that. When you go to God in prayer, you go to God and your mindset has to be, I want your will to be done. Let me say this. Number one, if that was the case, that would have saved so many people from some of the crazy prayers that they're praying out there. Because if your will is just that God's will, if your desire is that God's will be done, and you know that that's what matters the most, then you be careful how you labor about certain things. There are certain situations where you say, I don't know what God's will is here. And so I'm not going to pretend like I do and attempt to force God or cajole him. I want his will, be to, his will to, be, to be done. Second thing is, Jesus Christ teaches us to pray. When he teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, one of the first prayers is, we learn to pray, is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's what Jesus Christ teaches us to pray. And so when we come to pray like this, saying your, and, and, and we come to pray in a way that is, is consistent with the will of God, it becomes we come with a desire that says, my, most, my greatest longing is to see God's glory displayed in the earth. That's my greatest longing. And if that's not your desire, it's, it's going to be very hard for you to be persistent in prayer. But if your greatest desire is to see God in the world, to see God come down, to see God pour out his spirit, then there's never a time when you don't find the need to pray. Isn't it? Isn't it? It's, it's crazy. This is really crazy. That some Christians don't have reasons to pray when there's no trouble. When they think there's no trouble. I mean, first of all, I don't know that it's ever true that there's no trouble for the Christian. But if everything seems to be going well and work is fine and, you know, friendships are fine, no one's dying and uh, I'm healthy and I just feel good, I'm well... Apparently, there's no need to pray. Now, I'm not denying the way in which suffering has a unique place for driving us to prayer. We just see that at Gethsemane. But to suggest that there's ever a time when we don't need God to come down, a time when we don't need to see more of him, is absolutely, for the Christian, is unbelievable. I, yeah, there's never been such a misplacing of priorities. What has happened to you that means you don't feel the need 
to ask God to forgive your sins. What has happened to you that means you don't feel the need to ask God to make you see more of the gospel? What has happened to you that, it makes you, that means you don't feel the need to pray for God to save souls and for the gospel to spread and for the gospel to increase? What are you seeing? How blind are you being if you think your ease or some kind of ease is an excuse for not praying? When really and truly, for the pilgrim, there's just no ease here. Not in this world. And if we're heading for another world, we'll be calling upon the Father. You, you know, John's, Peter says it again in his first epistle. And so it's always been a curious verse to me. He says, if we call upon the Father, who without respect of persons judges every man, let us... Pass the time of our sojourn in here with fear. So the point Peter basically makes is pilgrims, at one level, pilgrims are bound to pray. The pilgrim's progress is marked on a trail of prayer. How can we not pray if we're heading for another world and if we have all these things to fight against? But we pray according to the will of God. That means we pray... Two things, two, two, two phrases in the New Testament that I think really exemplify this is that the apostles always define prayer as praying done in the Spirit. So pray in the Spirit, which happens to not be praying in tongues, right? It's praying empowered by the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. And the prayer of faith. Prayer of faith. Those two things remind me what it means to pray according to the will of God. We pray empowered by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean to be praying empowered by the Holy Spirit? To allow our minds and, our, and ourselves to be directed by the Spirit's word, by the word of God. Praying in a way that is consistent with those things God has revealed in his word. We constantly make that the bedrock for which we pray. And then we pray in faith. A prayer in faith means that we won't be asking God for those things and I think we'll, look, we'll, we'll see some of this next, next week. We won't be asking God for those things that God has not said he will do. We pray by faith. You trust an unbeliever. To, an unbeliever might say something like, Oh God, we pray that nobody goes to hell. An unbeliever might say that. The Christian knows better. It's not a prayer of faith to say that. We've, 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 we know what God has said in his word. We don't ask for God to... We certainly don't pray for God to satisfy our own sinful desires. We pray according to faith. But let me go to the last thing then, which is that when we realize that we have confident access to God, and when we realize that we, this confidence access means that we should pray in a way that is consistent with God's will, John says... That whatever we ask God for, because we know he hears us, we know that we will receive them. Since God hears us, nothing is too difficult for him. Since God hears us, and no good thing does he withhold from his children. Whatever we ask of him, we know we have received. In one sense, John says, we have to have a mindset that always expects prayer to be answered. We have to approach prayer that way. Whatever I ask of God, I receive. So the idea that it's okay to enter into the place of prayer full of anxiety, full of doubt, full of wondering, just throwing prayers, not sure if God is going to answer them or not, 
is far from being biblical. It's certainly not what believing prayer should look like. Whatever we ask God for, according in, in, that is consistent with his will, we receive. One, because he hears us. And again, hearing in the Bible entirely, both here in the New Testament and the Old, is a covenantal idea. So, does God hear the prayers of sinners? According to 1 John 5, no. Does God hear the prayers of, of Muslims and Buddhists or whoever else is praying in this world? According to 1 John 5, no. According to the language of what hearing means in the New Testament, which is, can you see what hearing means here? Hearing means for God to hear with a desire to grant whatever is asked of him. Because that supplicant, the petitioner, belongs to him, is one of his own. In that sense, no, God doesn't hear the prayers of the unbeliever. Now, in the sense that God is absolutely omnipotent, and he's everywhere, and he knows everything, and he sees everything, in that sense, does he hear? Absolutely. I would even venture to say that sometimes God gives unbelievers the things they ask for, but it's not covenantal. He's not bound to them. He doesn't have to hear their prayer. Your prayers, my prayers, those of us who lean on Christ, he has to hear. Because, and I'll again quote, uh, I'll quote the hymn we just sang, Sister Flo just played, or that David just played. The Father, and I think it's one of the finest verses in the hymn, the Father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away. Cannot turn away his son. He cannot turn him away. That is why we know that when we, are pray, when we pray, God hears us. Because God can never say no to his son, Jesus Christ. The unbeliever approaches in his own confidence. He approaches with a confidence that perhaps is delusional, is false, is misinformed. We approach with the confidence that says Jesus is praying on my behalf. He's interceding for me. God will answer me in the same way that he would if his son was asking. And that helps us here because you do have to ask, is it true that every single thing we ask for from God, he, he gives us? I, I, I imagine that just experientially, you don't think that's the case. Unless I, unless I began to kind of guilt trip you and say, but yeah, but how long did you pray for? And what did you bring? What did you pray? How long did you fast for? And how many people prayed about it? And you know, if we don't do that kind of uh, misinformed thing, the, the, the fact is we say, but, but God doesn't just give us everything we ask for. The scriptures don't appear to paint that picture either. And this is where we can go back to Gethsemane and see how the Son of God prays. Because you have to ask yourself, did God hear his son when he prayed? And at least Luke will tell us that well, well, two things I want to say that happened. One, we read actually of God sending angels to strengthen his son. So what that means is, Jesus Christ is asking, can this cup pass over my head? Just incidentally as well, there's sometimes people ask if the atonement of Jesus Christ is an absolute necessity. That is, could, Jesus, could God have saved the world in a, in a different way if he wanted? Or did it have to be the way of the cross? And some people say, and they come from a good place, they say, actually, God is so powerful, God is so great, that if he wanted to save the world like this, or just by wiping away the sins, he could have. He didn't have to go through this whole redemptive issue. If anything suggests that that's not true, and that the cross of Jesus Christ is an absolute necessity, surely it's Gethsemane, 
when the Son of God, who the Father never turns away, is asking if there's another way, and the Father basically responds, no, but my grace is sufficient for you. And the Father strengthens him. The Bible says angels strengthen him. The, the writer of the Hebrew says the Father saved him from death. He was saved from death. That is, at Gethsemane, was Jesus Christ, was he heard of the Lord? Absolutely. Did God answer his prayer? Absolutely. Because everything he requested was covered by his desire for God's will to be done. And when we pray, no matter what we ask for, one, because our desire is always for God's will be, to be done. Two, because, secondly, because regardless of what God's answer is, he will always give us himself. Then absolutely, John is right to say, whatever we ask for, we, we have, whatever we ask from God, we have what we have requested. Because God will never leave us. Even if God was to say no to your petition, he still hears your prayer. And he will give you exactly what you need. He'll give you the grace you need. He'll give you the answer you need. He'll give you the guidance you need. And those realities remind us that the right way to approach prayer is to say, this is the place where I will never be turned away. This is the place where God is bound to act in the place of prayer. And so there's this confidence we have that wherever we ask from God, he gives to us. Sometimes he makes us pray a little longer. Sometimes he makes us wait a little longer. Sometimes, as I've said, he realigns our desires. But prayer does all those things for us. Prayer doesn't simply mean that we just get things that we want. Prayer means that we are brought into communion with, with God. So let me close just by saying these two things, and then our sister Ian is going to uh, help us respond by singing, uh, what a friend we have in Jesus. But brothers and sisters, this passage is not even meant to be per se a rebuke towards our prayerlessness. I guess implicitly it's there. But when John writes this, he writes this as a matter of what our privilege is. This is our privilege. This is, our, this, is our, this is a benefit we have. This is our blessing. Prayer is not meant to be a burden. It's meant to be a delight. It's meant to be... It's meant to be something that we value, something that we love. If you're a Christian, I believe, I believe you see that. Now, now, I also believe that God is able to humble you enough by bringing you into situations where you realize that being prayerless was a crazy choice. But let me, let me from that vantage point of John's, remind you of the confidence that we can have before God. It's not a confidence you can have anywhere else in this world. When you talk to human beings... There's always all kinds of things that limit that kind of boldness. There's the, there's the fact that we're all, at some level, quite judgmental. There's the fact that men, human beings often judge by what they see with their eyes. There's the, there's the fact of our limitations. When I tell you my struggles, you tell me yours. What can we really do? Our powers are limited. Only before God do we have this kind of audience that is perfectly pure. You can't always trust the motives of someone. You tell someone something and their motives are not right. You can't, ever, you can't even just, you can't trust your motives. I thought I was telling you because I really needed help. I was telling you because I just wanted to gossip. I, you can't trust, you can just never trust. The only place where we can have that kind of boldness, that kind of freedom is before God. And you, got, you know, you know that you've told God things in prayer. You, would not, you, would, you wouldn't tell a soul in this building. 
You confess things to God in prayer. You wouldn't confess to another person in this building. You have that boldness and you have that confidence that God will hear you when you pray and he will work. He will do things. He will, he will work for you. He will, he, 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 will, he will act on your behalf so that he may manifest his glory in the world. Let's not waste this opportunity that we have to pray. Let's not waste that. Let's not waste the privilege we have to pray. And lastly, I say, as I said earlier in the sermon, that this is, prayer is often a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. Prayer speaks to the fact of how men and women can have an audience with God. How can, we, how can we actually be in God's presence? And the reason why people take prayer for granted is because they just don't realize that apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, we can't be in God's presence, not in any way that should fill us with boldness. One day, every single soul will stand before God's presence. But in that day, some of those people who stand in God's presence and will be ashamed and they'll face condemnation. And you don't have to wait till then because then it's too late. Now you may know yourself that if you, were, if you had to stand before God right now, just now you see in the way you've lived your life, you see in your heart that actually all there is is shame. Who are you to stand before a God so holy? So let me ask you, because one day you're going to stand immediately in his presence. How do you intend to do that? How do you intend to stand before the one who is so holy that the angels have to cover their faces before him. How do you intend to do that? Knowing that you have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We all have. The only way I can envisage. The only way I can think of it. And we I say this humbly. The only way that I can think in my mind that I stand before the presence of God. Is because of Jesus Christ who died. God's very own gift of love. The son of God. He has died. He has washed away our sins. He has made us kings and priests with God. And so if you're not already, if you haven't trusted in Christ and you, you see the evidence in the fact that your life is just without prayer, you don't feel like God is your father, you don't love the place of prayer, it's because one day you're going to stand before God and it will be too late unless you turn to Christ now. Turn to him in the gospel. Come and have this access to the heavenly father. And remember, not all the approval of the whole world matters if God is against you, what does it profit you to gain this whole world and to lose your soul? Turn to Jesus Christ in the gospel. Pray to God now and say, God, have mercy on me. Receive me. Forgive my sins. Wash me. Wash my sins. I want to know your son, Jesus Christ. And uh, you, you, you'll come to know uh, the, the Jesus Christ who ever lives to intercede for you and is able to save you in that last day. Amen.